Again, I think this is just perfect to illustrate what I'm talking about here. That Baltimore didn't die. And if anything, it was murdered. But we get the illusion that somehow black Baltimore just let itself down. That it was just broken and couldn't be saved. Nina Simone told us so. And if you believe what you're getting from these visions of Baltimore, again, the eschatology, the Armageddon, all Baltimore needs now is a savior. And surely enough, it's exactly what they thought they got. You're listening to In Search of Black Power. I'm Lawrence Grand Prix. In Search of Black Power is a podcast which challenges conventional narratives around black policy, black movements, and black life. We're coming to you from Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, a grassroots think tank in Baltimore, Maryland, with an extended platform, New Timbuktu. You can find out more at www.newtimbuktu.com. In the Shelley poem, Ivy Mandius, Shelley has a rendering of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses, who he calls Ozymandias. And Ozymandias says, Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. So part of that desire to be so well-known, so powerful, could part of that be to have your own ism, if you will, your own ideology that's so synonymous with you, no one can talk about it without mentioning your name. Few people or few families have reached that level in American history. And I would say one of them would be the Clintons. What is Clintonism? I, like many people, have an intuitive understanding of what that might mean. So when it comes to the cities, you have this vision of urban redevelopment, seeing the cities as this hub of civic virtue, of vitality. The Clintons' base has always been in the cities. But the Clintons are from the South. So we have this interesting juxtaposition of these Southern roots and this coastal theory of what it means to revive America, to generate economic and cultural and political growth. So where does Clintonism come from? And as I've done my research for this episode, I feel confident in saying the man I'm about to talk about is one of the most important figures in American history you probably have never heard of. Because he isn't a Clinton, but he is the progenitor of Clintonism. He might be Clinton on steroids in some ways when it comes to the theory of building a city, the theory of so-called neoliberalism. And what happens if you took Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton and put them in sole control of planning a new community? What happens if you take Bill or Hillary Clinton and make them a god? I think that's what happens with the story of a man named Jim Rouse, the savior of Baltimore, or so he's been called. And with every savior story, I think you probably need two things. It'd be nice if you had a conversion story, a little Saul becoming Paul, a little road to Damascus, if you will, and you need miracles. So let's start with the conversion story of one Jim Rouse. He's born 
though he's associated with Baltimore, he's born on Maryland's eastern shore in the early 20th century. And make no mistake about it, Maryland's eastern shore in the early 20th century is the South. It is absolutely no debate about it. And he's raised, essentially, with Southern mores around race. He actually ran track, and that was a track meet when he saw black track runners showering, turns around, walks out. Those are the mores of race in the South. No mixing. He actually has family in the Navy. So when he fails to get into Princeton, he actually goes to the University of Hawaii to begin his undergrad. In his correspondence, he notes one of the first problems here is all this intermarriage between the locals and the whites. So he comes back, he goes to the University of Virginia, and he gets to Baltimore in the 30s. This is the Great Depression. This is a period of intense suffering. And it's in this period that he finds religion. And while his religion might be Presbyterian, many folks would say his religion becomes economic development and the redevelopment of cities. He blurs the line between those two things. So while he is in Baltimore, he begins to develop a vision of the work he's doing. He began to go into real estate. He's starting to figure out ways to link real estate to his moral vision of the world. And in a book about Rouse's life, it details the beginnings of his political conversion. And it says, quote, During his Baltimore years, Jim's political philosophy also took shape. Long interested in political matters, he begins to formulate a set of ideas that led him to become a lifetime member of the Democratic Party. A rejected article entitled A Young Man's Vote, which he submitted to the Baltimore Evening Sun in 1936, expressed the belief that economic rugged individualism has made the country powerful, but its excesses had helped cause the Depression. While he considered economic incentives as a foundation of our economic life, he believed that it was something that had to be controlled. He concluded with the belief that in the present Roosevelt administration, because it has refused to accept an inevitable and irremediable disastrous results of the Depression, it has honestly sought a solution. In his first six years in Baltimore, Rouse had parked cars, audited books, attended law school, worked for the FHA, headed a mortgage development, and ultimately co-founded a mortgage banking company, all at a time when economic opportunities were scarce. In 1939, he was only 25 years old, but he wasn't finished making his place in the world and the best was yet to come. End quote. So you can see the anticipation of greatness when people talk about Rouse. And he goes on to be one of the most noted, respected, and cited developers of real estate and community planning in American history. He's known for essentially obliviating the line between urban planning and real estate development. And between his plan developments, between his work helping to build up Baltimore's civic infrastructure, he helps found something called the Greater Baltimore Committee, which basically becomes a quasi-governmental shadow agency driving economic development in Baltimore for his work creating shopping malls and his work essentially inventing the shopping mall and his work all over the country, he's given the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award any civilian can win. So he has a conversion from his early days as essentially a segregationist to believing that it was economic 
absolutely necessary to promote integration through economic development. And you see this consistently throughout his work. So we have our conversion story. Now we need our miracles. And if I'm sounding a bit heavy on the religious metaphors, that's the way this guy's talked about. Shockingly enough, just isn't hyperbole when I talk about him performing miracles, because that's how his economic development successes are narrated in the literature. So along those lines, his first miracle, let's just say that he walks on water. In the 1960s, downtown Baltimore has a dock that's no longer the center of commerce by ship. It's full of seedy bars and rundown taverns and the political establishment in Baltimore sees an opportunity to redevelop this downtown area, but no one thinks it's possible. It's downtown Baltimore. They're just going to ride there a few years ago. Then in the 70s, Rouse comes in, and he and the political establishment cook up this idea of something called Harbor Place. He extends the land into the water and creates promenades for walking. He builds up attractive real estate establishments and businesses all around this U-shaped corridor where you walk around the water in Baltimore. And when it opened in the 80s, Baltimore's inner harbor, Harbor Place, had more visitors than Disney World for that year. That's just how successful he was when he set his mind to doing economic development. Another miracle, you could say... He had the lions lay down with the lambs. Again, we're doing this out of chronological order, but in 1952, a Baltimore mansion and real estate entity called Mondamin was up for development. A guy named Patrick McCauley, former B&O Railroad conductor, had had this land in his family for years, and it was slated for development. But could it possibly be a multiracial development? Could you have blacks shop with whites? Could you have the lions lay with the lambs? And that was the spirit that Rouse brought to what many people said was an impossible economic development opportunity. And while it had its bumps, one of the spots that opened up was called the White Coffee Pot. That was not by accident. It was a whites-only establishment that Rouse had to demand seat blacks and was eventually successful. Open with a 100% occupancy rate for this shopping establishment was not an encased mall Rouse would do the first encased mall in New Jersey the very next year in 1953 in the literature it talks about Mondaman being a signature development quote Mondaman was an immediate success Choppers came from as far as the eastern shore in a letter written in January 1968, Rouse bragged about the good behavior of the young black people who came to the mall. Even though almost all of Frederick Douglass High School was right across the street, there was no problem with disorderly behavior. A good relationship exists between Mondaman, its guards, and the Negro youth who use it. And there have been very few instances, proof which is at a very low rate, and conditions are generally good. End quote. So... With his experience at the White Coffee Pot, Rouse isn't just creating urban renewal. He's seeking to create renewal of people through development. He, in fact, is one of the folks who coins and popularizes the term urban renewal. 
apparently when he comes back from the military in the 40s, he takes public speaking classes. And he goes on to stump around the country talking about his belief in the power of shaping environments and how that can shape people. One of his most well-known speeches, he's at UC Berkeley, it's 1963. And Rouse is speaking about how community planning is typically done and how he believes he can do it better. To not just develop communities, but develop people along the way. And in that speech that's still studied today, Rouse lays down his theory of how we can make the world a better place through development. And he says, quote, How can we really talk about what size the community should be, the structure of the community and its neighborhoods, until we first asked and answered a lot of questions about what we are trying to achieve in the community and what will contribute to the growth of people? I believe the ultimate test of civilization is whether or not it contributes to the growth, improvement of mankind. Does it uplift, inspire, stimulate, and develop the best in men? There really can be no other purpose of a community except to provide an environment and opportunity to develop better people. And then we have to ask what constitutes growth in people. Is it increasing their physical capacity, improve their intellect, strengthening emotional balance, security, or personal effectiveness? Perhaps it's all these things, but in searching for the ultimate purpose in development of a community, I could find no test so embracing and so satisfactory as the biblical injunction. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Inspired and concerning society will dignify men, will find ways to develop his talents, will put the fruits of his labor and intellect to effective use, will struggle for brotherhood and the elimination of bigotry and intolerance, and will care for the indigent, sick, and aged. Is the advanced civilization of New York truly superior to the undeveloped society represented by the swamps and slums of San Juan when New York seems to develop hostility, violence, and delinquency in Puerto Rican immigrants? Is Baltimore a superior civilization to the backward rural South when statistically illegitimacy and other indices of family instability run higher among second-generation Baltimore Negroes than their counterparts in the backward South? What better test might there be if we search to find measurements of community, but related instead to the growth of people as people. Some answer, some target, is necessary starting point for planning if it is to have real roots and be valid for the people of whom it is intended, end quote. He goes on to ask a bunch of rhetorical questions about how you engage in the planning process. And he's not just redefining urban development here. I argue he is trying to redefine the American spirit, the American dream. He's taking rugged individualism that goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, the yeoman farmer, and he's creating a new vision of it in the cities. He's not just a new developer. He, maybe he wouldn't agree to it, but I think he's the new southerner who's able to have cordial and respectful relationships to develop the indigency out of the people who are from Puerto Rico or the Negroes from Baltimore in the very design of the city itself. I don't want to overstate this, but you can imagine how elegant of a solution to racism this could appear within the American consciousness. One of the questions he asks about planning is, could we increase efficiency of public services like trash collection if we took them out of the state's hands and put them in the hands of private business. So he's not just the head of a new religion of Rouseism. 
He is the beginning, the head priest of the church of privatization, neoliberalism, and intelligent technocratic planning, i.e. Clintonism, i.e. the American left that dominates D.C. today. This is just how important Jim Rouse is at this time. Hi, Lawrence again to talk to you about LBS Sustainers. We're doing this two-part series because we're trying to understand the importance of history. And I want to talk to you a little bit about how we're hoping LBS can fit in to Baltimore's history. So one of the characters who the real person, of course, mentioned in this episode is Marion Bascom. And while it's not mentioned in this episode, Mr. Bascom was part of what's called the Goon Squad, a essential organizing force in Baltimore that helped to change the landscape of civil rights in this town. And these are the type of stories that you can only hear in independent black media, which can only exist with your support. So we're hoping to do more episodes like this in the future. But we're not just telling Oracle stories about folks like Mr. Bascom. We're trying to copy their model. So the LBS Sustainer model is modeled after historical funding methods for the black radical tradition. Not looking for big donors, but small community-based support which helps fund the work that we're doing in the community. So we're looking at future books and future podcasts from the New Timbuktu Project, but we're also looking to bridge the generational divide in our work. So when you support LBF, you're not just funding us. You're helping us do things like hire interns, or if we need to bring in an elder to help us our work, we can compensate them fairly. So we're asking you not just to listen to history, we're asking you to help us make history. And you can do that by going to lbsbaltimore.com slash sustain. Thank you. But with that speech in Berkeley, I think we can begin to step back and question what we're hearing here. He doesn't qualify his analysis of the Puerto Ricans or the blacks. He doesn't say they're perceived backwardness. No, they're backward. And we have failed because our cities didn't fix them. The cities have failed not because they're racist, per se, or inherently. It's because they have not accomplished their civilizing mission that they were supposed to set out for themselves. So there's some questions he just leaves off of his list. And I don't want to reproduce it here. It's a long list. The man likes to talk. He talks about measuring progress. How do you measure black civitas? Intercommunal black bonding and the social fabric of black life. It's never a question for Rouse because he doesn't see that bonding as productive. He sees it as something that has to be improved. Let's, let's run a historical example. Let's run a scenario, if you will. Take the white coffee pie and let's say Rouse has integrated it successfully. Hooray. What are those conversations like in 1968 or 69 or 70 after the Baltimore riot. This communal fabric being produced in ways that are productive in that coffee shop. I would argue probably not much. What is that really to talk about? Two contrasting visions of where Baltimore needs to go. Two contrasting visions of what just happened in 68. Burrell seems to believe if they are just there touching each other, Somehow, some way, something can change. Can we take up the burden 
what often sounds like the white man's burden through integration, through connection, and what's the cost of this moralizing vision of communal advancement. So what is the burden that Rouse is trying to affirm here? I think it is the burden to make a new world, and that creates his third miracle. Rouse saw emptiness and darkness, and he established that darkness and said, let there be life, and created civic fabric ex nihilo out of nothing. This is, of course, Columbia, Maryland, one of the first and most well-known and beloved planned communities in the country. Now, you could do a whole podcast series on the creation of Columbia. I don't have the time to do that. But I do want the folks out there to understand just how influential this civic experiment was. This is a town created out of nothing by a developer who believes that in creating this town, he can create better human beings. Just think about, this is pinky and the brain level hubris we're talking about here. He's literally doing this from scratch outside of Baltimore in Howard County in the 1960s. So I can't go into how he got the land. That's a whole story in itself. There are all these backroom deals and secret negotiations. But there's a parcel of land between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. in a place called Howard County. And Jim Rouse and his development company saw an incredible economic opportunity to not just build real estate, but build people, better people, through intelligent design. That was a Freudian slip, but it's very appropriate. Columbia is not one city. It's nine small villages around a city center. There are lakes named after famous Native American figures. There are Villages that bear the name of great historical figures of literature. There's a hospital that's planning for the schools, that's planning for the religious facilities even. And when it all comes down to being built, Rouse stands up and he says, if we're going to get this town built, we're going to have to make some tyrannical decisions around here. That's a quote from Jim Rouse. It takes tyrannical decisions to get this human experiment built. There must be sacrifices in producing the temple. In a new city upon a hill, a history of Columbia, Mitchell and Stedman talk about just the nature and the scale of this experiment when they write, quote, Construction began in earnest in June 1966 on the town center in Wild Lake Village, a $60 million project conceived and constructed, as Bob Tenenbaum stated, with great love and a lot of detail. In the early years, the town center was to have residential units, an exhibition center for the new city and office buildings, which embraced the western side of the lake. Later development was to include restaurants, shops, and recreational facilities. Wild Lake, where 12,000 people would reside in townhomes, apartments, or single-family dwellings would require eight miles of street, two miles of dual-lane landscape parkway, a mini-bus route, as well as an elementary school and neighborhood centers completed with tot lots. Its neighborhoods, Brent Woods, Faulkner Ridge, and Running Brook were named respectively for American writers William Cullen Bryant, William Faulkner, and a poem written by Robert Frost. Street names also featured lines from their work. The village center would provide space for a village hall and community center, a shopping center, offices and studios, a swimming facility, tennis courts, playing fields, and the city's first library and service station. Land was also set aside to accommodate construction of the city's first middle and high schools and its religious facility centers. 
in quote. Fun fact, another community was actually named after none other but Tolkien. And this has a Middle Earth feel to it. This really feels like he's going for a new reality in this little sliver of land in Maryland. And an amazing piece of irony, Columbia really starts to sell homes in none other than 1968-69, right as the Baltimore riots hit. Can't really make this stuff up in terms of the perfect timing. And one thing Ralph certainly wasn't of his many failings, he was no hypocrite. And the integration conversation he had around Columbia was real. He had passed a state law with a woman named Verna Welcome, one of the state's first black woman state senators, that said that Baltimore-style racial discrimination would not be tolerated here in Columbia. It was seen as a utopia for mixed-race couples. And Ralph was apparently thrilled the first child born in Columbia was indeed of mixed race. And when four families bought homes on a cul-de-sac and they were all black, a fifth black family was going to move in and Ralph tormented over it. He did not want to have the black portion of Columbia. And he knew that could begin to happen if this fifth family moved into the cul-de-sac, talked to him, got him to move somewhere place else. And with this level of attention to detail, this intentional construction of community, you can perhaps understand why this conversation about Columbia is filled with religious language. He brings a priest to the convocation of the town, and the priest says, represented here are man's ability to dream dreams of a better world. The faith required to crystallize those dreams and the knowledge and skills of the past to bring those dreams to present reality. The book written about Columbia and Rouse is called A New City Upon a Hill. And the engineer said the construction could not go forth without the, quote, blessing of the town's designers. Though shockingly rocky, Columbia was not always profitable. Downturns in the 70s impacted it. But the town was a profitable success for Rouse. It's still seen today as one of the best places to live in America. And you can just see Ralph standing there looking upon Columbia like Ozymandias himself. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and rejoice. I've made a better world for you. So what happens with Jim Rouse, triumphant, takes this show back to his adopted home of Baltimore? So I said at the beginning of this conversation about Baltimore that the city has historically been a battleground for these series of renewal and rebirth versus the possibility of these apocalyptic endings. And it's no hyperbole to say this is a struggle of literally biblical proportions. So what we're going to talk about next is a project originally called the Nehemiah Project. It would change his name as it went on, as we will talk about. Nehemiah is a biblical figure. When the city walls of Jerusalem fell, it was Nehemiah who said to people who came by, asking to rebuild those walls for a price, no, we will rebuild these walls ourselves. And this biblical figure of Nehemiah was taken up by pastors in the Bronx as they did a real estate program 
where the churches were intricately involved in rehabilitating real estate in the Bronx, selling it to black parishioners in the black community at an affordable rate and changing the context of that community. And it's this example of the Nehemiah Project, this this civic intervention into perceived brokenness that came to Baltimore. Could argue that was the first mistake, taking a template from the Bronx and assuming it's work in Baltimore. I think there's something to Baltimore about this inferiority complex that's building up. And the idea that it worked in the Bronx sometimes, if it worked someplace else, Baltimoreans are quick to jump on it, feeling the need to attach themselves with something that has value, that's something that's seen as great. But in the 80s, Baltimore elects its first black mayor, a guy named Kirk Schmoke. He wanted to start building on the east side of town, but his political partners told him, look west and look at this little part of town called Sandtown, this historic part of town where Billie Holiday used to live. Look at the center of that community and the corridors that go there, a little street called Pennsylvania Avenue. Maybe you remember that from earlier in our conversation. And see if you can rebuild that small piece of Baltimore the way Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. This process started as you could call it a bottom-up process, but the people involved were heavy hitters. They weren't regular everyday street folk. There's a coalition of churches in a coalition called Baltimore's United in Leadership Development, also known as BUILD. One of those churches is none other than Jim Rouse's church. And they were the civic and political tip of the spear that helped get this Nehemiah project off the ground. There's a pastor named Grady Jurgen who talked about the lofty vision of this project. Again, Baltimore as a potential site of redemption, utopia, and overcoming. When he says about the Nehemiah project, one day it will be said that in the city of Baltimore, In the last quarter of the 20th century, strange and unusual things began to happen. The upper crust began to meet with the middle crust and those who have no crust at all. It was a peculiar people, a strange and unusual coalition that negotiated and fought and worked together. End quote. And Mr. Jurgen is speaking to what we have talked about in the past, this fracturing of Baltimore's black community along class lines. And he says, Nehemiah will re-suture the civic fabric of Black Baltimore. Going back to the days W.E.B. Du Bois talked about the strengths of the middle class and the mutual aid societies and those beautiful homes with their washed marble steps. That's the Baltimore we have to get back to. That's the utopia that we lost. But you need a developer to make something like this happen. So who do they turn to? None other than the man who can walk on water, who can make the lions lay down with the lambs, Jim Rouse. Now, Rouse is a bit long in the tooth at this point, but he has a not-for-profit development wing called the Enterprise Foundation that's doing work all over the country. And they come to Sandtown with the same evangelical fervor that they brought to Columbia. Rouse is quoted as saying, there is a time to plant and there is a time to harvest. I'm going to harvest what you put in me. Speaking, of course, to God. And he sees the possibility of redeeming Sandtown, of creating a rebirth here, the same way he created life ex nihilo, out of nothing in Colombia. 
and it is this evangelical fervor that was used to sell the project. And you can look at the media coverage of the project and see how Rouse's frame is contextualizing the effort, perhaps contextualizing to get away from the original intent of folks like Grady Jurgen and some of the pastors who produced the project. Washington Post writer Anna Borgman writes about the project saying, developer James Rouse anticipated and shaped the landscape of American life, held as a visionary and prophet. He had one final message for America before he died. The slums can turn a prophet and be brought to life. Rouse focused most of his efforts on Stantown, a devastated neighborhood in West Baltimore that represents the worst of America. His Enterprise Foundation working with Baltimore City officials and neighborhood residents laid out a vision for an all-out attack on Stantown's brokenness, arguing that fixing a neighborhood's failing systems would cost less than government and private entities currently spend on piecemeal and often after-the-fact efforts. End quote. And we see here more clearly the limitations of the Roustian worldview. We talked about W.E.B. Du Bois. We talked about the NAACP. We talked about that long history of black Baltimore. We talked about the secret societies. And what do they see when they look at Baltimore now? Brokenness, an all-out attack on Stantown brokenness. It represents the worst of America. Being facetious, you could imagine the Ku Klux Klan (laughs) representing the worst of America. But no, somehow it's Sandtown. It's Pennsylvania Avenue. We talked about this during the 68 riot. These people who negotiated what they would steal and what they would and wouldn't burn in 68 are somehow the worst of America. And you can see it if you actually look at the map that the Enterprise Foundation draws up about how to save Sandtown. It's all over the place. They want to do everything. The whole community is marked up the way you would mark up a freshman research paper. And they say, we're going to build this here. We're going to tear this down here. It's the same approach they brought to Columbia. But of course, they're not building ex nihilo. They're building on top of what's already there. But can they see it? Are we back at the flaw of the Egyptologist, assuming that nothing was there? The Saints had eroded everything in Egypt, and they were just copying and reductive of the Greeks. Are we making the same mistake here in Sandtown? Now, this episode comes out of a yet unpublished paper that I wrote about this Sandtown development. That's the original real start of this conversation. So many of the quotes I will speak are from the personal research I have done interviewing people related to this project. One of these people is Diane Bell McCoy, one of the people who ran the so-called Enterprise Zones in Baltimore at this time. And he speaks to Jim Rouse's vision, saying, quote, Jim wanted to invest in everything in terms of the school system, the health system. All that's not possible on the ground in a small geographic area. All those things are much more controlled by the system and systemic challenges, including systemic racism, built into all that. If you're not going to dig into that, you don't get neither the resources necessary nor the sustainability, end quote. It's just really surprising that the man who invented a town from nothing thought he had to do everything, that he wanted to invest in everything because he thought nothing was there. He is quoted as saying, we must be honest, the constitutive parts of functioning community do not exist in the inner city, end quote. 
to Ralph's credit, he does say they don't exist in the suburbs either. But he says they don't exist in the suburbs anymore. That we used to have a stronger civic fabric in this country, but we need intentional design to rebuild it because it's gone. It never existed in the inner city, it seems, for Rouse. So all the history of segregation and policing, the Navy officer shot, the addiction and trauma, the Vietnam War, all those get normalized for Rouse, for the Washington Post, for the Enterprise Foundation. And what you miss is the existing fabric of what's already there. It's easy to think. All those folks that are with the NAACP, like Du Bois, they left. Or they moved to Columbia. Or they moved to Washington, D.C. or New York. But that's not the case. Harold McDougal, a professor at Howard, did an excellent book called Black Baltimore, A New Theory of Community. And part of his work was in-depth study on Sandtown before and during the Nehemiah Project. Soon to be renamed Nehemiah Project. And he does an inventory of community assets. And he and his research assistant, a resident named Asina Young, talk about what they found when they actually looked at what was there in Sandtown in the 90s. And they say, quote, Community resident Asina Young carried out a street survey of Sandtown with my assistance in the summer of 1991. The diversity we observed in our first assessment was amazing. We passed evidence of Muslim and black nationalist activity, a Muslim carryout on Carey Street, the Nation Builders Bookstore on North Avenue, and the home of a Rastafari with a Haley Selassie emblem and handwriting, apocalyptic messages posted on the windows. On Black Business Row on North Avenue, across from Nation Builders Bookstore, black street vendors who live in the area come out around lunchtime and stay until dusk. A-rabbers, black vendors who sell fruit, vegetables, and fish from horse-drawn wagons from West Baltimore gather on Winchester Street. And the stable at Sandtown senior A-rabber, whose street name is Fatback, there they collected their produce and merchandise to sell on the streets of Sandtown. Fatback stable was later bulldozed to make way for the Nehemiah Project. End quote. And this is one of those quotes where you find it and you can't believe that you actually found something that so strongly confirms what you feel to be true, what you know to be true but have a hard time seeing. McDougal used the term vernacular culture. That there is a network, like a spider's web, of community institutions that operate not vernacularly like slang, like black slang, but in terms of a specific time and place. There are institutions that a community creates to resuture the fabric of that town, that produce economic activity, that fill needs physically, but also fill needs emotionally, psychologically, and culturally in ways that cannot be accounted for. If you just look at their profit, that cannot be accounted for if you just look at the number of employees. And the vernacular culture of Sandtown was booming in the 90s, even if the economic culture was declining. So what could you have done? Could the Enterprise Foundation come in and invest in what was already there? Could they understand why these black bookstores didn't burn down the riots? Could they educate people there about what they need to be educated on? Like the conditions of their lives, like the aftermath of the Vietnam War, like why are there Confederate statues in Baltimore City? I thought Baltimore City was part of the Northeast Corridor. You can imagine a young kid in Sandtown asking, but this is not what Rouse knows how to do. 
who are the cultural figures emblazed literally into the foundation of Colombia? Faulkner, Tolkien, the Eurocentric classics. Those are the ideal that Rouse has normalized in his work. And by that standard, Sandtown's always deficient. So we need to raise them up to that ideal as opposed to embracing that they might fit their own ideal. And this is where the biblical quote from Matthew, verse 5, chapter 30, comes in. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw away. In some versions of this text, it says, If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It is better to enter heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. And I fear this is the end point of Rouse's so-called rugged individualism and evangelical fervor. That the solution for Sandtown is to transcend and isolate itself from its vernacular culture and ascend to what Rouse and others in the dominant society see as the ideal in ways that demonize and demand the destruction of that vernacular culture, just like they destroyed Fatback Stable to start the Nehemiah Project. When I talk about this, I usually quote the distinction between René Descartes, the European philosopher, and African philosophical traditions. René Descartes famously says, I think, therefore I am, while the African concept of Ubuntu talks about I am because we are. And I feel this is the divide between the vernacular culture of Sandtown that McDougal and Young observe and the emptiness and brokenness that the Washington Post and others observe. So what does this mean precisely for the Nehemiah Project? Again, I was able to do interviews on this and one of the folks I talked to was Harold McDougal himself. And he talked about the interactions between the folks from Enterprise and the folks from Sandtown reflecting exactly this cultural division. And in one of these interviews, he talks about citizen participation in the design of the projects and how shallow and superficial it became. And in that, he gives an example that, again, blew me away when I heard him say it. And it was so emblematic of what I had thought, but also what I feared was happening when this project came to fruition. He says, quote, The only nod towards citizen participation was a series of what they called charrettes. You have these meetings where you consult with the community what the design of things will be. That's a much more robust and vigorous process than middle class or upper middle class museum where you're talking about design about a museum or something like that. But here you're talking about housing projects. And they say, we want to talk to you about what we're going to do with all this money that we have. These folks with a lot of formal power kind of come like Zeus among the mortals. End quote. All of the talk about Rouse as a savior, is it possible that gets part of the cultural DNA of his organizations that he builds? One thing that Rouse talks about with Columbia is he did not want churches all over the place. He thought that was inelegant and inefficient. So how else could you come to Baltimore and see churches literally on every street corner and say your civic fabric is messy and inefficient? Your vernacular culture is chaotic and come in subconsciously or consciously wanting to fix it and make it better. But as we know with McDougal, this vernacular culture is what sustains the community 
through things that folks coming from enterprise probably couldn't understand. And it is a manifestation of hundreds of years of black culture in Baltimore. But this produces the divide between the Nehemiah Project in terms of the religious leaders who drive the process and the Enterprise Foundation people to the point where the churches pull out of the project. Could it be because of the assumptions around religion? No one quite knows for sure. But this is when the name changes from the Nehemiah Project to the Neighborhood Transformation Initiative, NTI. A nice sterile acronym for us to sink our teeth into. And what do we actually get from the NTI? One of the most visible changes was they redid a market called Upton Market on Pennsylvania Avenue. And it has this beautiful facade of like Afrocentric markings on it. But what's inside is a dollar store. And in the dollar store, there is contained a police substation. This is the vision of community progress that NTI maybe didn't plan for, but was conducive to or allowed to flourish. But that's not the kicker. What really drew me to the story and where we begin to get towards our third and final riot of this story is a little thing called drug nuisance abatement. When you invest millions of dollars in the community, you have to protect your investment. And with that comes increased enforcement of drug laws. This is the early 90s. This is the beginning of the crescendo of the war on drugs. And while the goal of NTI was to increase the property value in Sandtown, in some ways, they got more than they bargained for. They created what was called million-dollar blocks. That's not the property value of the homes in Sandtown. That is the total cost, the total value created of paying for the people from Sandtown who are incarcerated today. That one zip code has so many people incarcerated. The total spent every year on incarcerating them is in the millions. And that's not despite NTI. I argue it's because of it. It's because of the destruction of the vernacular institutions like Fatback Stable. It's because of the increased patrolling of police to protect the investment, quote unquote. And it's because folks don't understand how community actually works. Now, this text isn't perfect, but Todd Clear from Columbia University talks about what he calls the coercive mobility hypothesis. That says that when you arrest someone in the community, it affects the entire social fabric of the community. It's just like ripping a piece out of a spider's web. Even if you're selling drugs, if you're part of a family, you might be paying rent for that money. You might be shopping at Mondalmin Mall up the street from Sandtown with that money. You might be buying pampers with that money. You might be supporting people culturally, all different types of ways. And when you arrest that person, that family might have to move. They may have to move in with their grandmother on the upper side of town. They lose their organic social connections. The fabric of the vernacular culture is shattered. That has nothing to do with the crimes that person was committing. But the impact of their incarceration ripples throughout the community. And instead of a virtuous cycle with people investing money in community buying food from the Arabers and talking with the people from the Muslim bookstore and creating an ecosystem of institutions and community for community, you begin to have this downward spiral 
where the very institutions you need to change a community become lost because of your attempts to save that community. But why? Why did this happen? They said all the right things, Rouse, the city, enterprise. They talked about investing in people. They talked about organizing themselves out of a job. They said everything right. But it was my conversation with McDougal. I think shed some light on what happened when it came to brass tacks with the Nehemiah Project. And he says, quote, I talked to the lead fixer for the Nehemiah Project. He was candid. He said, look, I work for a foundation and these are people with a lot of money and they're used to investing in a certain way. And what they're looking for is what we call deliverables. In other words, they wanted something physical so they could say, we brought this building. They can't say we brought a better relationship between John and his wife. They can't say we bought a better experience in schools unless they can trace him in every grade and his grades are higher. That was too soft for them. They were looking for clear physical evidence, i.e. put up a building, end quote. So for all the talk of building better people, being conducive and driven in the profit motive, hand in hand, like peas in the pod, it's the vision, the psychology of investors. Where's the profit in this? Not necessarily the economic profit. Where's the human profit? I want to see the grades. I want to see the economic achievement of the community. That comes in from Rouse and his way of seeing how you build better people. Some people might say, hey, you might be being too hard on these folks. Look at all the money they invested. Look at all the houses they built in this community. And you'd be right. They did invest money. And not all of it was for facades and for buildings that were problematic. And this is the most insidious part, in my opinion. Is that when you talk of coercive mobility, it doesn't just happen when you quote-unquote fail and arrest people, even though it's not a failure, it's part of the program, arresting people. It happens when you succeed. There were people that moved up economically through this project, and many of them moved out of the worst neighborhoods of Sandtown, Winchester. So the same way you have coercive mobility when people are arrested, you have voluntary mobility creating the same disruption to the civic fabric when people move to other parts of Baltimore City. You have the same exact people who could be the leaders in restoring the vernacular cultural fabric of the community, rising up, overcoming, and adopting the maxim of Matthew. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If Sandtown causes you to perch your community, leave it behind. And this is what happened for the people who did benefit from Nehemiah. They moved to the neighborhoods that were rebuilt through the project, leaving the worst-hit neighborhoods to fester and decay. And this is where the conversation around Ozymandias comes back. All the money invested in Sandtown. So little there remains. The housing stock decays. A professor from Yale, Doug Ray, said this was a inherent fool's folly. You can't build your way out of a housing surplus, he says. That's like pouring gasoline on a fire because it competes with the remaining units that causes them to go blank. And that's exactly what happened with Nehemiah. Abandoned homes, build new homes. More people move away from the abandoned homes towards the new homes. You make the problem even worse. Nothing there remains. And this is what happens with Rouse's other investments. Demollification begins to build up around the country. 
The man known for creating the shopping mall sees his malls become less and less profitable. Nothing there remains. Columbia, the civic fabric, begins to revert, if you will, to the defaults, I think, of America through self-segregation. And the neoliberal impulses begin to creep even into Rouse's utopia. A Washington Post article from 2018 says they're beginning to shut down some of the village-based community centers that Rouse was so proud of. The sands stretch far away. And what does this mean for the people in Sandtown? Because it's not just there's nothing there. In Sandtown, they were actively removed to the prison industrial complex. You can't see always inside of a prison, no matter how much you watch The Wire or Oz. You can't see the desolation and human destruction that comes from that experience. It's just left off of your calculations when you see the value of something like Nehemiah. And the human toll that it truly causes can never be calculated. No matter how hard Rouse and company try to rejigger our calculus around building community, the destruction... That is an apocalyptic moment when you go to jail in a way that Shelley, the poet of Ozymandias, perhaps could not figure or Rouse could not figure. But in this vein, it reminds me of another poem, a poem that is apocalyptic at its foundation and has been so influential in thinking about this issue so central to Baltimore. This poem is called The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood did time is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Holly all those words out when a vast image of a spiritus mundi troubles my sight. A waste of desert sand. A shape with lion body and head of a man. A gaze blank and peeless as the sun is moving its slow thighs. While all about it, wind shadows of the indigent desert birds. The darkness drops again. But now I know. That 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. That poem is written in the aftermath of the First World War. You can imagine the terror that that caused. That's an ultimate apocalyptic moment right there. That wasn't based in black Baltimore, but was for the whole white world and black world to experience. And you can see the linkages in the black experience to apocalyptic moments. Perhaps that's why The Roots talks about things falling apart. That's why Chinua Achebe talks about things falling apart. This apocalyptic imagery being so strong, you could imagine when they use white phosphorus and SWAT rays for the war on drugs, maybe that's a bit like chemical warfare in World War I. You can imagine Rouse being a bit like a god, hoping that Columbia is like this moment of rapture where those who are virtuous can ascend. Again, that maxim of Matthew, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. And you may go to Columbia or you may go to the homes rebuilt from Nehemiah, 
but we never rebuilt the wall of Jerusalem to continue this biblical analogy and Sandtown continues to fester. Of course, our relationship to the Sphinx is a little bit different, perhaps, than Mr. Yeats who wrote that poem. We'll get to that later. But I want to talk about one more thing with the Neighborhood Transformation Initiative, formerly known as the Nehemiah Project. It's that one of its central tenets was we were rebuilding a public housing project called Gilmore Homes. Remember that word, Gilmore? From the 68 riots where the band of men disrupted the food giveaway on the west side? So despite the attempts to make Gilmore Homes a pleasant place to live, the decay that happens there after NTI fails is intense. We have over-policing, which we've already talked about. You have the failure of repairs of these government-subsidized housing projects. It got so bad that the folks who were doing repairs at Gilmore Homes were able to elicit sexual favors for their repair service, basically saying, I won't repair what's wrong with your house in Gilmore Homes unless you do something for me sexually. So in this environment, with the civic vernacular cultural fabric shredded by the War on Drugs and Neighborhood Transformation Initiative, you scan forward to 2015. And in this environment of zero tolerance policing, and specifically in the month of April, not just any day, but exactly 164 years to the day after the 1861 riot, a young man known in Gilmore Homes as Pepper, Freddie Gray, dies of the injuries he sustained from police a week before. And this gets us to, of course, our third and final riot for this episode, the 2015 Baltimore Uprising. Now, this is not the space for me to do a definitive history of the Baltimore Uprising. This is a vernacular history of the Baltimore Uprising, perhaps in eschatological history of the Baltimore Uprising, that word we talked about at the beginning, about the study of revelations, the ending of things, apocalypse, and the possibility of rebirth. everybody. My name is Lady Breon. I'm the cultural curator at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. And I came to this organization because I really wanted to have an impact on Baltimore, specifically Black Baltimore. And as an artist and curator, I recognize that the lofty ideas of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle is often missed by, you know, your average day folks who don't speak that really highly intellectual scholarly language. So I use my art and my advocacy to reach those people. And currently, I'm working to create a Black Arts District in West Baltimore, and your money as a sustainer can help not only support this podcast, but to support that work in West Baltimore. So please, give $2, give $10, give $15 a month to help support the efforts of the Black Arts District, this podcast, and the general work of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. Many people have talked about the events that led to Freddie Gray's death. But what few people have talked about is what happened 
on two days before the most well-known period of the uprising. And this is where I felt the need, and I feel the need when I always talk about these things, to start not on the Monday, the moment when everything made Fox News and things began to be known around the country, but two days before. Because when you're talking about the Baltimore uprising in 2015, this is the moment we begin to see the linkages, the repeating of history over and over and over again to our previous two riots. So on the Saturday of the Baltimore uprising, there's a meeting of activists. There's a rally in downtown Baltimore on Gay Street, same street that was central to the 61 riots, the 1861 riots. There were civic organizations, not necessarily the churches, the black bourgeoisie, but just people who had come together trying to organize the marchers into a force that could send a political message. Part of the attempt was to march down Pratt Street. Remember Pratt Street, the same street from the 1861 riots. And the goal was to march them to Camden Yards, formerly known as Camden Station, the same exact place where Abraham Lincoln was trying to go on his trip in 1861, turning and turning the widening gyre. History repeats over and over and over again. This march was strategically calculated to disrupt the economic functioning of the city to show the city will not tolerate what happened to Freddie Gray. And the energy in the crowd came from a band of people who came from Gilmore Homes, the housing project where Freddie Gray lived and died. They had been marching down their street to the Western District Police Station for the entire week where Freddie Gray laid in a coma in the hospital. And when he died, that energy swept down from West Baltimore to the city center downtown to Camden Yards, the former Camden Station. And while there was an intentional effort amongst the people in the crowd to march peacefully, some people felt they had to express their frustration in a different way just as they did in 1968. What did they experience? Sewing bottles, sewing rocks, the exact same resistance as in 1968. And what did they encounter? Riot control tactics, tear gas, the exact same thing they experienced in 1968. Which brings us to Monday. And where was the epicenter at least in the public's opinion, in the public discourse around the Baltimore uprising. It was at Mondawmin Mall. Remember when Ralph talked about the great relationship that he had built between Frederick Douglass High School and the mall? That was never necessarily always the case. And that reality laid itself bare in 2015 with a transportation hub there that the young people depended on to get home from school was blocked off by police officers. Why were the police officers there? Because of the events on Saturday. They had preemptively deployed, just as the National Guard did in 68, assuming there would be a riot. And many people, just like 68, said 
the, it was the interactions between the police and the young people which precipitated the violence. The falcon cannot hear the falconer. The messages of history cannot get to us. We repeat these things over and over again. Things fall apart. Many people know what happens next. There's sporadic looting at Maldalman Mall. There's the burning of some establishments again. Not the black-owned ones. Not the ones who have connections to community. You have the burning of cars, including police cars, on Saturday and Monday. And you have Obama, the president, coming on TV, calling for moderation and saying there's no excuse for these actions. But then you have Fox News slandering the young people, calling them gang members, just as they did in 1968. And the mayor of Baltimore, a descendant of the black bourgeoisie of the town, calling them thugs on national television. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are filled with passionate intensity. Things fall apart. But this isn't all that happens on that day. The drugstore, for example, that burnt down in 1968 didn't burn down in 2015. Again, just after in 68, black leaders went into the streets and organized their community to end the violence. And again, just like in Sandtown, when they talked about the Muslim bookstores, the vernacular culture of the community being strong, it was the Nation of Islam, amongst others, who were out late at night protecting young people from the police, and one could say vice versa. It's $9 million of damage in the riot in 2015. That's a very, very small riot. But it's not small in the cultural imagination of the people who talk about Baltimore. And it's not small because it fits into this constant refrain that something is wrong with Baltimore, that there is this failure, this apocalyptic reality to Baltimore that is innate, that is stained onto Baltimore. That only makes sense when you ignore its history or you believe that the saviors of Baltimore were somehow shunned, that we didn't listen to Rouse enough, that we just didn't give NTI enough of a chance. People say consistently, if only Jim Rouse had lived long enough to see Nehemiah through, if only Jim Rouse the Messiah had lived long enough. And I think that's a fundamental misreading of what's happening here. And we are stuck in the widening and widening gyre over and over again. Google is talking about building planned communities in Toronto. Microsoft is literally building an oasis in the desert, a planned smart community that's designed to be a hub for research on technologies on how to build better cities. And I can't help but think of Ozymandias when I hear about this. Look upon my works, ye mighty and despair. And how Rouse twisted that and contorted that. Look into my works, ye febile and rejoice. And we do it over and over again. But if we just twist the gaze just a bit, if we see beyond our limitations, can we see the depths of what we had missed? The poem about Osmandius, this Egyptian pharaoh named Ramses, assumes that he had failed in creating a legacy that could live on in stone, assumes he had failed in his attempts to impose his will into history. But now we know all of the historical failures and inaccuracies, that way of thinking, 
expresses. This is the way of thinking that says the pyramids were built by slaves. We now know for a fact they weren't. That it was an expression of communal agreement that this testament to the gods should be built. That the laborers on pyramids did not function in slave-like conditions. But it was in labor that they agreed to acquiesce to to build this monument. And what could that teach us about how an individual can engender that kind of loyalty? How could they have such fidelity and cultural unity to a vision of what they wanted to produce as a civilization that they can make something as great as the pyramids? It's not Ramses that lives on in those pyramids. It's the vernacular culture of the Egyptians. It's the vernacular culture of African people working together through what one could call Ubuntu. And even Ramses himself was not totally forgotten. In the war that he fought, this, this great battle against a group of people called the Hittites in modern-day Turkey, we got out of that an African war of aggression, but we also got out of that the world's first peace treaty and one of the most beautiful pieces of political script ever written, the Treaty of Kadesh, which states, and this is the peace treaty between Egypt and the land of Hittah. It states from now, from the beginning of the limits of eternity, as the situation of the great ruler of Egypt with the great prince of Hittah, that God did not permit hostilities to occur between them through a regulation. Behold, Hittilius, the prince of Hittai, has set himself in regulation with Ramses, the great ruler of Egypt, beginning from this day to cause that good peace and brotherhood occur between us forever. While he is in brotherhood with me, and he is at peace with me, I am in brotherhood with him and in peace with him forever. End quote. And this idea of peace, that hostility shall not occur between these two countries forever, that they are in peace and brotherhood, again, that is the cultural fabric that the Egyptologists could not see. And it's today the cultural fabric of black Baltimore that those folks selling us new visions of grandeur cannot see. So I end this conversation by explaining what brings me to this study of history. It's because I believe, and many folks believe, Baltimore is at an eschatological moment where the future of its city is at stake. There are visions to rebuild Baltimore bigger, better, global finance capital, maglev trains, Baltimore as Dubai, Baltimore as home for multinational corporations, these glittering skyscrapers that represent a vision of progress. One distinct from Rouse. It doesn't have the evangelical fervor and the claims of rebuilding humanity, but they perhaps are cousins of Rouseism. And this is what's being sold to the citizens of Baltimore, their new utopia. It's their way out of the eschatological cycle of destruction and attempted rebirth, a failed rebirth. But what happens if we have a new vision beyond destruction? What if we embrace the vision that black people can be their own saviors? It's a frightening vision. It's a vision that may look a bit like apocalypse because maybe it doesn't lead to the maglev train or maybe it produces new political arrangements. What if we had invested in the people of Sandtown as if they 
were the anchors. As if they had the ability to produce their own Columbia on their terms. That vision would be chaotic. It might be churches on every corner. It might be the type of things that Jim Ralph would find terrible. Maybe even apocalyptic from a Ralphian worldview. The chaos and complexity of black people in America given the resources to build for themselves, to produce their own future. It reminds me of the story some of you have heard about a person talking to their grandfather and say, I see two wolves. One I think represents light and the other I think represents darkness. Who's going to win? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. Baltimore has a decision to make about what vision of its future will be fed. Public money, political thinking, and public support, the emotional fervor of what is to come that will prevent the next riot, the forced Baltimore riot. And increasingly, the vision of the glittering skyscrapers, the cousins of Rouse are sold to us that this is your salvation. This is why I use such religious terms in this podcast. Because it is a religious, secular religion of development that's being placed upon us today. And we have to choose which wolf will we feed. Could be a future of Baltimore as Dubai. It's Baltimore as a Rousean ideal of unity through capitalism and commerce and mixing. Or maybe if we look to what the Egyptologists might have missed, the strengths of the vernacular culture, the fatback stable, the Arabers, the people on the street sharing literature. What if we rebuilt that vernacular cultural fabric and saw that as our potential utopia? And we don't have the answer to this, but we do know that that is the question. Remember the Sphinx in the poem about the second coming. For the author of that poem, the Sphinx has a double meaning. It's about the second coming, and he's slouching toward Bethlehem, but the author is an atheist. He's talking about the religion, the fear of the second coming. Could itself be something we have to challenge? What feels like apocalypse could in fact be liberation. We don't know what that Sphinx is. We just know it's slouching towards Bethlehem to be born. As our visions of the future manifest themselves, we don't know what they will be. But we do know that is the central question. What wolf will we feed? What vision will we endorse? What rough beast slouches towards Baltimore to be born? to In Search of Black Power. Make sure to follow us, like, and subscribe on Twitter and Instagram at LBS Baltimore and on Facebook at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. You can find this podcast at www.newtonbuck2.com and on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you find podcasts. You can also support us and become a sustaining member at www.lbsbaltimore.com. In Search of Black Power was created by Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle, hosted by myself, Lawrence Grand Prix, and Lady Breon. 
Our associate producer is Iore Odigizua, and our engineer is Justin Gladden. Our research assistant is Aaron Brown, logistical support from Nadira Smith. Thanks to the whole hashtag LBF gang, and we'll see you next time in search of black power.